We're in a series we're calling Family Matters or Family Matters, however you want to say it. And what we're doing is we're kind of walking through the kind of typical stages of family life. I know there's no such thing as typical family these days. But nevertheless, kind of the typical way that we think of, of the progression of family going from last week, the kind of the courtship, dating, falling in love stage. Uh, next week, we'll be talking about parenting stage. And then we're talking about parenting parents stage that I've just come through in my own life. My mother was 87 when she passed just this past year, and, and Kim is dealing with that, and her mother, who's just turned 87, some of you are either there or you have parents that are coming there. It'll be a powerful message that I hope you'll come and hear Pastor Ryan bring to you. Today, we're talking about marriage, and we're talking about the foundation that is essential in order for marriage to be everything that we believe God called it, uh, called it to be. So let's just get into it. Genesis chapter 2, from the very beginning of time, God began to lay out those foundations. In fact, it's all encapsulated in these two simple verses of Scripture. Maybe you've got the Bridge app. You can bring it up, see all the Scriptures and all of the notes that I'm going to give you today. You can save those to your journal and take your your own notes right there on your smartphone or your tablet, or it'll be on the screens. You can look it up in your own Bible, but let's get into it again, okay? You ready to go? Ready to get into it? Three are ready, a couple of woos, so let's do this thing, okay? Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, 25, 1, 2, 3, read it together. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and understand naked and naked are two different things, so we'll just say naked, and they felt no shame. Naked means you got no clothes on. Naked means you got no clothes on, and you're up to something. That's just that's the difference. <laughs> And they felt no shame because they're married. But let's go, I'd love, rather talk about that, but let's go back and talk about this. There are two key words in this passage that lays the whole foundation for marriage. Do you see them? They're underlined. It is the word united and the word one. Understand that in the original Hebrew language, the word united was the word dabach. I murdered the pronunciation of that. But here it is. Dabach carries the idea of taking a, a tapestry and then taking another tapestry, both of which are beautiful in their own right, but now they are interweaving those tapestries so that they are no longer separate. They are now one beautiful tapestry. None of the beauty of the originals are lost, but there's a whole new tapestry that's formed, which leads us to the word one, which in Hebrew is the word hekad or chad, which means completely joined together as one. So it is so interwoven is that you can't see the seams you can't tell that it was originally two. It is now one tapestry, which is why, quite frankly, the dissolution of a marriage is so painful, whether in death or divorce. It's just incredibly painful because it's not two people that came alongside each other for a while. It's two people that got interwoven completely together, and the only way you you end that is to tear it apart, and it can be incredibly painful. So what we're going to do today is we're going to try to give you the the, the foundation that makes it possible for you to have a dabach echad kind of marital relationship. I realize I'm talking to married people. I'm talking to single people. I'm talking about single again people. I realize it's a broad audience. And so for some of you, you're going to be listening in the context of your own marriage. Some of you listening in terms of a future marriage. And some of you, quite frankly, in terms of giving advice to younger couples that are either planning to get married or who are, who are married. But wherever you are in life, these foundational principles are critical to us all in order to have the kind of marriages that ultimately bring glory to God. That said, let's get into it. There are four parts to this foundation that leads to a dabak echad 
kind of one relationship. Number one, part number one, is marriage is about we, not me. Say it with me. Marriage is about we, not me. Say it again. We, not me. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up, but pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down and they keep warm, but they, can, they will keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Do you see the benefits of close relationship? Do you see it there? Can you kind of outline them? Can we go back through and outline them? What was it? First of all, a good return on the work means that you are more productive together than you are ever productive alone. Two can, ha can accomplish far more, uh, exponentially more than one can alone or two people separately. If one falls down, a friend can help him up. In other words, when you get in trouble, you don't have to figure out how to get out of it alone. Your friend can help you. Uh, if you're cold, it's kind of nice to have somebody to help you stay warm. Does that make sense? And if you get attacked, you don't have to fend the bad guys off by yourself. You've got somebody that's got your back. That, that's wonderful, quite frankly, in any kind of relationship. But in marriage, when you get that right, buddy, that's powerful stuff. And, but here's what you need to hear. Every married couple I know wants those benefits, but you can't have those benefits in your marital relationship until every decision is a we decision. You can't have those uh, benefits uh, until you have a confidence that when you're down, the other's going to lift the other one up. Until you know that when we go through crisis, we're going to go through it together. Many of you know that, uh, that our son Andrew went to heaven uh, last October, and Kim and I have been grieving uh, deeply through that whole season. She's in Virginia taking care of, of, uh, of his kids right now, and, and she sends her love to you. She said, be sure to tell the Goldsboro folks how much I love them, because she was here during those months that we were together, uh, entering, uh, leading you on an interim basis. But uh, we talk every morning, and so even though we're geographically separate, we're grieving together through this journey of processing through it all. Hear me, guys. If you're going to have that benefit, then you've got to go through all this stuff together. When there's a conflict, you have to address it together and resolve it together. Let me just throw this in just for, for a little added benefit for some of you. You understand from the moment you're married, you will never have another problem as long as you live. Oh, there's a word on that. You, you will never have another problem as long as you live alone. <laughs> Why? Because if Kim's got a problem... I got a problem. If I got a problem, Kim's got a problem. There is no longer I got a problem, she's got a problem. There's only we got a problem. And so if you really want a marriage that, that is built on a foundation, you got to understand that marriage is not about me. It is about we. And you got to bridge that, that gap. But there's another part to the equation. What was the last part of the verse? Do you remember? A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. And so you get the picture. I mean, I actually have a picture, I think. I pictured a three-leg race. So you've seen those before. How many of you have ever done a three-leg race before? You've seen them before? You're too cool to raise your hand in church? Which is it? Uh, we've all seen it if we haven't done it. And those who have done it know that it's incredibly difficult to do. Can I get an amen in the house? 
first universal amen I've ever had in my life. It's just really hard to do. And if you don't figure out how to get in sync, if you don't commit to teamwork, if you don't commit to unselfishness, if you don't commit to somebody being the leader, if you don't commit to figuring this thing out together, and if you don't have something strong to hold you together while you're figuring that out, you're not only going to lose the race, you're going to fall flat on your face in the grass. This is what happens. And so you've got to have that bond in a, in a race. It's usually a strong cord or something like that. In marriage, that bond is the person of Jesus Christ. When you let Jesus and your relationship with him be the bond that ties you together, you, you have a we relationship. So hear me. When I say marriage is about we, not me, I'm not talking about we two. I'm talking about we three. It is you and me and Jesus, and we have a relationship. No longer it is I have a relationship with Jesus. It is we have one together. If you really want the marriage that you hoped for when you stood at the altar, the first ingredient, it's about we, not me, and it's we three, not we two. Second part of the foundation is marriage is a covenant, not a contract. Say with me, marriage is a covenant, not a contract. And I know covenant's not one of those words that we use a lot these days, but hear me. It is a word that God uses to describe every relationship that he's involved in. Because God is a covenant-keeping God. That's one of his names, the God who keeps his promises. And marriage is one of those relationships that he calls a covenant. That, that's why God considers the dissolving of a marriage a big deal, because he is intricately involved in the relationship. Lots of examples in the Bible, but Malachi gives us one that I think is really powerful. Malachi, of course, was the prophet at the time, uh, at one of those many times, when Israel was whining and complaining. And in fact, this time they're whining and complaining that, that God isn't blessing them like he used to. Uh, and they were kind of surprised by the prophet's answer. Let's look at it in Malachi chapter 2, verse 13. That's not Malachi. It looks like Malachi to me. So, Malachi chapter 2, verse 13, 14. Let's read it together. Okay, here we go. You flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and you well because he no longer pays attention to your offerings. Let's put that in context for us. He's saying that means you pray and nothing happens. You sing songs in a worship event and you don't feel anything. You with me? That's what they're complaining about. And then the answer comes. You ask why. And the answer is not given by Malachi, the answer is given by God himself, and here's what God says. It is because you have broken faith with your wife, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. In other words, God says, you can't expect everything to be cool with me when you violate the covenant between you your spouse, and me. It was a three-way relationship that God established, and, and, and you can't expect everything to be cool with me when it's not cool in all three. Does that make sense? And so that covenant relationship has to be a part of it. Now hear me, guys. We live in a culture that teaches the exact opposite of that. Let's be honest, guys. We live in a culture that, that, that defines marriage not as a covenant but as a contract. You understand the difference between a covenant and a contract? Do you, let, let me explain it. Just make sure we're all on the same page, okay? A contract is something that's based, it's an instrument that's based on mutual distrust. Is that true? 
It is. If you enter in, there's nothing wrong with the contract, but if you enter into a contract with, with a, a service provider, then the contract says, if you provide this service, then I will pay you for the service you provided. Contracts always include an out that says, if you don't provide the service, then I'm not going to pay you. And if you provide the service and I don't pay you, then you can sue me and force me to pay you. That's, there is a mutual distrust built into the contract to cover it in case somebody fails in the contract. Is that true? That's true. Uh, and now hear me. We live in a culture that says that. I'm in as far as you are in, and I will do my part as long as you do your part. But if you don't do your part, I'm going to sue you for divorce, just like you would uh, a company that didn't perform. That's not marriage in Scripture. In Scripture, the marriage is a covenant relationship, and covenants based on mutual commitment. Not mutual distrust, but mutual commitment. A commitment that says, I'm all in, period. Not, I'm in as far as you are. I'm just in. Now, if I'm all in and you're all in, it's good. But I'm in whether you are or not. Understand, when I say this, Malachi is not the one that called marriage a covenant. It was God that said it. Here's what I need you to understand. Covenant, from the original Hebrew word in the Old Testament, most of it's written in Hebrew, is the word berith. And berith actually is defined by a cutting, a binding agreement, a blood covenant. That's much stronger than any contract you've ever considered coming into. In fact, in ancient times, the priest would actually take the couples and he would cut their hands and he would put their hands together and tie them. You've heard of the tie that binds? That's where that comes from. Is this idea they actually put their hands together and tie them together. Uh, sounds barbaric, but they didn't forget their vows. I could promise you that. So how many of you are glad we don't do that anymore? <laughs> yeah. But you know what we do? We exchange rings. Or we light unity candles. Or we mix sand. I mean, there's, there's lots of ways to do it. But all of those are simple symbols, not as painful as the old ones, but they're symbols that say the same thing. I'm entering into a covenant relationship with you and with God. We're not establishing a contractual relationship where I promise to have and to hold from this day forward for better for rich, for better for worse, richer for poor, sickness and in health, as long as you both shall live, as long as you do, I reserve the right to sue your pants off if you don't. Was that, was that in your vows? It wasn't in my vows. It's not in any vows that God has established. Now, again, i got to say this just to be sure you understand before we go on. Uh, many of you know the pain of not getting this right. I, I get it. Some of you, uh, it's because nobody ever taught you this stuff. In some cases, you weren't a follower of Christ, and you didn't know how to establish a covenant relationship. In some cases, you didn't have any control over it. Somebody else made decisions for you, and you just had to deal with it the best you could. I get it. But whatever your circumstances, I need you to hear me say, I did not come here to beat you up. God loves you, and there is no plan B. There is no plan B for your life. All the days of your life were ordained when you were in your mama's womb, and God has this amazing way of weaving everything into a pattern for good. And if you'll give it to him, it doesn't matter how far you've come in your journey. It only matters where you go from here. So hear me, guys, looking forward, not backward, we need to establish the simple truth that marriage that, that lasts, marriage that stands the test of time, is a we relationship, we three, not me, and it is a covenant, long-living, long-lasting, binding relationship that we cannot be easily released from. You got it? 
the third part then of this foundation is that marriage requires mutual submission, mutual submission. Let's unpack that a little bit, okay? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Let's read it together. One, two, three, go. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So who's submitting in the relationship? Hello, are you out there? Both of you are submitting, right? It's a mutual submission that's going on. And why do we do it? I mean, this verse alone tells us why we do it and how we do it. There's one simple verse. Why do we do it? Out of reverence for Christ. What does that mean? That means that we submit to one another in order to bring honor to Jesus Christ who submitted himself to us. See, Jesus had all the glories of heaven, rightfully so. He's God. And he gave up all of that, submitted himself to live on earth in the form of a man. He submitted himself to servanthood. He submitted himself to serve all the way to death and even the worst possible kind of death, death by crucifixion. Why? For us, for you, for me. He died in our place. He submitted himself completely. Now, the Bible says because he did that, he will now be lifted to uh, the highest place that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But the bottom line is that he showed us what submission looks like. So we submit to one another in a marital relationship out of reverence for Jesus submitting to us, which also tells us how we submit. How do we do it? A marriage is about two people putting into their relationship with one another the same thing that Jesus puts into his relationship with us, which is everything. He didn't hold anything back, and we don't hold anything back from each other. Submission has become a dirty word in modern culture. But you understand what the word submit means? One of the meaning, meaningful definitions of submit is to make yourself fully vulnerable fully aware. Kim and I are about to build a house, and I went to the bank, said, I don't have to borrow a little bit of money, and I need to talk to you about that. And, and anybody want to guess what the banker said? Well, I got some papers I need you to submit, all right? So in order to get this loan, what do I have to do? I have to just kind of open myself up. I have to say, here's my income, here's my debt load, here's my credit history, here's my ability to pay. Here's, I just kind of have to put it all out there and say, okay, it's yours now. You get to decide what you're going to do with it. And if, and if all my papers are in order and my numbers are in order, then they'll give me the loan. They will submit a check to me, right? Does that make sense? Submission is about vulnerability. Submission is about intimacy. Submission is about authenticity. Submission is about transparency. It's about making ourselves completely available to one another. So let's be honest, okay? Let's just be honest. Every married person in this room came to the altar <clears throat> with needs. Hello? Again, I've been married 42 years, and uh, I remember vividly standing at that altar and watching her come in the absolutely most beautiful woman on the planet still is. Sorry, ladies, you don't stand a chance. Don't know what to tell you. She just is. It's just, I've been in 10,000 rooms in, in, around the world, and I've scanned the room for somebody that holds a candle to her, and I can't find nobody. It's just, that's reality. Uh, but I also, as she's walking down that aisle, I'm smiling, going, 
She's going to meet all my needs. She's walking down that aisle, and she's seeing her knight in shining armor standing there all tall and skinny and tuxedo. I got fat eventually. But anyway, you know, she just sees all of that, and she's going, isn't he handsome? Isn't he smart? I just got the best man on the planet, and he's going to meet my needs. We all come into marriage that way. We bring needs into that relationship. What you need to understand, though, is the only way we get to that place where we are actually mutually submitted, bringing our needs and expecting and, and fully finding those needs met is if we understand that marriage is in stages and that it starts with what I call the dating stage where we're just kind of, it's kind of honeymoon, euphoria and all, everything's wonderful. He's perfect and beautiful and everything's just lovely and we have everything in common and then all of a sudden you discover one day we don't have everything in common and and we don't even like some of the stuff that we have different. And we get into what I call the debating stage where I had a couple come to me one time back in the days when I was doing marriage counseling. And they came in and they were a lovely couple. I mean, very attractive and, and well-dressed and intelligent and capable looking people. And they came in and sat down in front of me. And, and I said, uh, so I, what brings you guys here today? And the husband looked at me and said, um, <clears throat> you can't tell. No, sir, you're going to have to tell me. He said, I'm married to the devil. That's why we're here. <laughs> okay, we might want to explore that a little bit. <laughs> in the process of, I'm serious, in the process of sorting that out, here's what I discovered. She did something that hurt his feelings, and he refused to forgive her. The Bible says, be angry, just don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath, lest you give the devil a foothold. That word devil in that passage is the Greek word diablo, which means slanderer. So what happened is he held on to that hurt until the devil started whispering in his ear, you deserve a better wife than this. They're, they're be they're, the grass is greener on the other side of the hill. And he started slandering his wife until he started to believe those lies about his wife until they finally came into my office and said, if you don't do something magical, we're over, we're done. Understand, every marriage goes from the euphoric, unrealistic stage through the conflict stage before they get to stage three, which is a mature love that, that, that says, I bring something to the table, you bring something to the table. We stop competing with each other, we start completing each other. But again, did I mention it's we three, not we two? I need you to understand that there is not a person on the planet that can meet 100% of your relational needs. They don't exist. You can't meet anyone else's 100% of their relational needs. God put a hole in our soul when he created us, and it is God-shaped. There are certain relational needs your spouse can meet, and he or she should be meeting those relational needs, but there will never be a point when they can meet them all because God intended that we look to him for that. And here's what I've seen through the years, couples that don't get that, who don't understand that, who don't mutually submit their gifts, their talents, their abilities, their needs, and bring it together and say, okay, let's figure this out together. 
let's, let's serve each other as we're being served by each other, and let's make sure God is at the heart of this relationship. Couples that don't do that, here's what happens, is they'll be married to somebody who's meeting 80% of their relational needs, and they'll start struggling with the 20% that are not being met, not realizing that God is the only one that can meet those, and lo and behold, at work or at school or somewhere out there in the community, they'll meet somebody who meets that 20%, before you know it, their heart and eyes starts to shift. And one day they wake up a year or two later and say, what in the world have I done? I gave up an 80-percenter for a 20-percenter. How did I get here? It's because you thought somehow your spouse could meet 100% of your relational needs, and they're not capable of that. It's got to be we... Three, not we, two. When you get that, it's about we, not me. It is a covenant relationship. God is an equal partner in this whole process. Your spouse is not your source. Jesus is. That's when you finally find what you've been looking for all along. In other words, when I fully submit to Kim and Kim fully submits to me and both of us fully submit to him, Wowzer. <laughs> it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Building a strong marriage requires a solid foundation. Building anything requires a solid foundation. There are four parts to the marriage foundation. There is, you want to say me or you want me to? There is we, not me. There's covenant thinking. There's mutual submission. And then finally, this one's not real popular, marriage has a leader. Simply put, a monster with two heads is a, I'm a creature with two heads is a monster in anybody's movie. It just can't happen. There is no way, hear me guys, there is no way that God created the family unit as the most important unit in society and then didn't give it a leader. There's just no way he did that. And the family unit is the most important unit in society. It's not the government. It's not the church. It is the family. As the family goes, so goes the church. As the family goes, so goes the nation. As the family goes, so goes the world. The family is the most important basic unit that God created from the very beginning, and God would never have established an institution or an entity so important and not give it a leader. And I know this flies in the face of culture, but let's examine it, okay? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 22 to 24. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, which, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Can I tell you why I believe uh, some wives find it difficult to submit? Can I tell you why I think that's become an unpopular concept? Some people would say it's feminism. I don't believe that for a minute. I believe the reason it's become an unpopular concept is because some of us husbands are doing such a bad job of leading and it's really, really hard to follow a bad leader. There's a couple of dysfunctional models that I've seen through the years, frankly, that I've been guilty of from time to time over the years, and I guard my heart against it. One is the dominant leader. The dominant leader is the one who's manipulative, who's controlling, who's dictatorial, maybe even abusive if he doesn't get his way. 
I don't know if that makes me more sad or mad to hear a Christian man kind of use that passage to dominate their wives, but hear me, guys, that's not godly leadership. In fact, hear me say that as bluntly as, as I know how, gentlemen, it is not your job to get your wife to submit. Let me say that again. It is not your job to get your wife to submit. That's her job. Your job, read the rest of the passage, your job is to die. That's your job. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and died for her. Your job is not to make her do anything. Your job is to die for her. On the other hand, the other extreme, just as dysfunctional, is the passive leader. That's the one who abdicates the responsibility of leadership. He, he, you know, he goes to work and brings a paycheck home, whatever, but, but then he spends his free time uh, watching TV, playing video games, going to the game. He's got no plan. He's got no direction for the family, uh, nor is he looking for a direction for the family. You need to know, guys, uh, if you're married, uh, if you ever do marry, if you're single now, uh, your wife will have hopes and dreams for her family. She will have hopes and dreams for her children. And if you don't provide leadership in that, she will step into that void. Don't chafe if she steps into the void that you created by abdicating your role as leader in the home. Don't, don't chafe at it because nature abhors a vacuum. Somebody's got to lead. So if those, aren't, if those are dysfunctional models, dominant or passive, th then what's the, what's the functional model? Well, it's Jesus. It's servant leader. Let me give you a couple of examples, and maybe we'll understand a little bit better, okay? We'll do, let's do church first, because you might maybe can capture that one, and then we'll talk about the home. In the church, um, Christ is the head of the church. Can I get an amen? amen? And under Christ, I've been given the responsibility to serve as the senior pastor of the bridge. Pastor Ryan has been given the responsibility to be the lead pastor of the Goldsboro location of the bridge. We have responsibility to provide leadership, me overall, Pastor Ryan, here in this location of the church. That means that he and I will stand before God one day and give an account for how we led. Anybody think that he and I lay awake some nights with the sense of that responsibility and the weight of that responsibility? Trust me, we do. Trust me, we do. But hear me, that does not mean that we dominate. It doesn't mean we make all the decisions. I mean, our church has multiple layers of, of support and accountability. We've got elders and staff and financial stewardship teams and hundreds of volunteers and, and, and ministry leaders. and uh, We don't even know all the decisions that are made, much less make them all. It'd be dysfunctional if we tried to know them all because we trust the leaders that God is bringing around us. At the same time, it doesn't mean that we're disengaged, that we're passive. Y'all do whatever you want to. It's fine. I'll show up and preach, and I'll go home. That's just my job is to preach, and y'all is, is to figure out what we're going to do. That's not leadership either. So what's our job? What's our role as leaders? It's, 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 we're the guys who spend hours and hours and hours praying, God, where do you need us to go next? We're the guys who bring the other leaders together and start the dialogue to say, guys, what, what is it that we're, we can come into agreement about and accomplish together? 
In the overall ministry, I'm responsible to initiate those conversations. The multiply and mature vision and goals that maybe you've seen them posted in the lobby, or if you take the ownership class, you'll get a lot more detail about that. That, that didn't come out of the thin air. It's not something I dreamed up and, and handed out for everybody. I started with the staff. I went to the elders. I went to the financial stewardship team. Then we invited everybody who leads anything in the church to a meeting. About 100 people came, and we walked through it all together. Before we were done, there were 100 50 leaders that had bought into the multiply and mature vision way before Ryan came here and Andrew went to Mount Olive and I went to Princeton and we cast vision. We, we made sure that we were all walking in agreement, but it was our job to start the dialogue. It was our job to keep the dialogue going. It was our job to figure out what was needed in order to get there. Is this making sense? See, that's leadership. Our job is to help you succeed at whatever it is that God's called you to do. Now, I said all of that to say this. Uh, our church has been through a, uh, as big a transition as any church I know of in the last couple of years. Pastor Jeremy was the lead pastor of the Goldsboro location for its first almost 10 years. Did a wonderful job. Many of you were part of all of that. You love Jeremy and Sabrina to death. I do too. Uh, but there came a time when God said to them, I want you to do something else somewhere else. And so they're ministering in Durham right now, and they're serving the Lord in Durham. And so it was hard to let them go, but they left. That's when I fell in love with the Goldsboro uh, Bridge because they asked me to come and be your interim uh, pastor until we figured out, until we found Ryan, quite frankly. And so I fell in love with you guys. And this is home for, for me, but, but about the time, within a couple of months, and finding out that Jeremy had since the call to leave, Pastor Farrell, who had been the overall leader of this ministry for 27 years, had led it from 69 to 16, 1700, said the same thing. It's time for me to go. He and Miss Millie are pastoring in West Tennessee now. You talk about major transition when the founding pastor of this location left and then for all intents and purposes, the founding pastor of the bridge left after 27 years. Quite frankly, there's a lot of churches that don't survive that kind of transition. Enter Jim Wall, i.e. sacrificial lamb. <laughs> oh boy, what are we going to do? Well, I'll tell you what we did. I said, come on, let's get our heads and hearts together and let's figure out where God wants to take us. What is God doing? And out of that came the multiply and mature plan. And the result is, I just got the reports for April in, and I don't know if you know this or not, but, but across our church, uh, the month of April 2018 was the highest attendance in the history of the bridge. Praise God. It was the strongest income in the history of the bridge. More importantly, we've had more people saved so far this year than in any year in the history of the bridge. God is at work in our church. Now, is that because I'm so smart? Somebody say yes. Just one. Just one person. No, it's because I started a dialogue that ultimately led to agreement. Does that make sense? And then working together, I'm talking to leaders like Heat, who's building his team, and Jennifer, who's building his team, and Cassie, who's building her team, and, you know, just watching these teams raise up. And some of you aren't on a team yet. See these guys. They'll put you on their team. They'll, you know, just, that's, we're building teams, and we're raising up leaders because there is no shortage of harvest. There are thousands and thousands of people around us that desperately need Jesus. It's just a leader shortage. That's all there is. But somebody has to be the leader that says, come on, let's rally our hearts around this. Now, how does that apply to home? 
I do the same thing at home that I do in the church. Every now and then through the years, we've been married 42 years now, every now and then through the years, I'd sense there was some tension or, or we'd kind of drifted apart or we were just kind of going through the motions of life and I would say, Kim, I remember one time we'd been married about 20 years and I said, Kim, I, I want us to go to dinner Friday night. She said, well, okay. Uh, any particular reason? I said, yeah. I think our, our, uh, most of our conversations these days are about the remodeling project, the church, or the school where you work and our kids go. And I want us to go to dinner, and we can't talk about any one of those three subjects. And so we did. We went to our favorite restaurant, and we sat there, and we ordered our meal, and we're sitting there, and we're going... I've been married to this lady for 20 years, and I can't think of anything to talk about. And I finally said, so how are you feeling about life these days? Where do you see us three years down the road, five years down the road? The stuff we talked about when we were dating that said, I want to do life with this guy. I want to do life with this gal. Somebody has to say, let's go to dinner and let's put some boundaries on the conversation. Same thing when we moved to North Carolina. It was just that journey of, uh, what are we going to do? Well, let's talk about it. We, we made the decision to move to Carolina, and then nothing ever happened until one day we were here visiting, and we're sitting in a car outside of, of Harris Teeter Grocery Store, and I said, Kim, we, we've agreed that we're going to move to Carolina, right? She said, yeah. I said, so what's keeping us from doing it? I don't know. Well, then let's do it. Okay, let's do it. Somebody has to start those conversations. And, and it is in mutual agreement. It is in mutual submission. It's not dominant, but it's not passive either, guys. Hear me. The first sin on the planet may well have been Eve taking the cran apple and taking a bite of it, but the first sin that men created was when Adam said, okay, yeah, I guess I will. He was passive. Passivity was the first sin that a man created or, or, or committed. We can't do it, guys. We can't be dominant, but we can't be passive. And I know this idea of husbands uh, leading is not a popular subject these days. I get that. But, but our families desperately need us to step up and take the lead in a Jesus servant leadership kind of way. I did a wedding some time ago, and the couple was was new in their relationship with Christ, and they really understood these principles. And so they asked me, Jim, could you be sure to talk about Ephesians 5 in our wedding? And so I did. And, and afterwards, we're in the reception hall, and this lady, probably in her 50s, uh, came walking up to me, her husband walking three or four steps behind her. And she walked up to me, and she's kind of squared her shoulders, and she said, I bet it's not a very popular subject these days. And I said, what subject is that? the idea of wives submitting to their husbands. And I said, well, I'll be honest with you. I've yet to see a woman who, when her husband loves her so much that he would die for her and he shows her that every day, that she doesn't rest in that leadership. And she started to cry. And I looked over her shoulder to her husband who was standing there, and I said, Sir, your wife needs you. Man, it's our job not to dominate. That's not leadership. Not to be passive. That's not leadership. But to serve in a way that provides leadership. Uh, guys, step up. Ladies, give him a train. Give him a shot. If he hasn't been doing it right, give him, give him he'll, he'll learn. Give him a chance, okay? 
But ultimately, the foundation has to be we, not me, we three, not me, remembering that it's not a contract, it's a covenant, remembering that when we mutually submit to one another, it is a partnership, and then one, defined by Scripture, the husband, takes the lead in a servant leader kind of way that marriage finally becomes what we want it to be. Is that easy? No, it's not. But frankly, the family depends on it. Here's how Jesus said it. Luke chapter 11, verse 17, Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself would be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. I got to close. Let me just say this. If the foundations of your marriage have been crumbling lately, can I beg you not to try to fix them by saying it's her fault? It's his fault? Can I say, Lord, what are you trying to say to me about me? What are you trying to tell me about laying these foundations for my marriage? What do you want to do in me? Psalm 34.3 becomes the hope for us all. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. As we go to prayer, here's what I want you to hear me say. I mentioned Kim and I have been married 42 years. Some of you have very long-term marriages. Some of you not. But here's what I hear over and over again when I say, yeah, my wife and I have been married 42 years. People immediately go, wow. And why do they say that? Because it ain't as common as it once was. And the result is people have become afraid. The average age of marriage in my grandmother's day was 15. In my mother's day, it was 19. In my day, it was early 20s. And today, the average age is 29. People are getting nervous about marriage. We have the opportunity to show the world that marriage works when you lay the foundation that God defined. We get the chance to glorify God in our marriages. And I'm asking you to do exactly that. True to God's character, you're the one that gets blessed. But ultimately, he's the one that's glorified. Would you bow with me? Thank you, Jesus. While our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I'm going to ask you to take a risk. If you're sitting with your spouse, would you just take the initiative, reach out and hold his or her hand as we pray this, pray together. If your spouse is not here, maybe he or she is deployed or they had to work today, or maybe they're not walking with the Lord right now. You're here alone. Just put a hand over your chest, over your heart. And let's pray this prayer together, would you? Lord, I want a biblical foundation for my marriage. Maybe you're single. You don't even have plans to get married. But if one day you did, this still is your prayer. Lord, I want a biblical foundation for my marriage. And I know that means it's a we, we three, not me, relationship. I know that means that I have to enter into it with the idea of covenant, not contract. I'm all in for life. I know that means that I have to make myself fully submitted to my partner, my spouse. I have to be authentic and vulnerable, take a risk of being honest. And I know that means that you established a leader and I will step up to be that leader 
or to follow that leader as you defined. Thank you, Jesus, for the privilege of having the marriages you designed when you created this institution. And I pray blessing over every couple and every future couple that's here right now. In Jesus' name. Keep your heads bowed for just a minute. Altar workers are coming. They're going to stand here in the altar. If you want to pray with somebody before you leave here, then you'll have that opportunity. But at the very least, I want you to pray a prayer with me now. If you've never really asked Jesus to be at the center of your life or of your marriage, would you pray a prayer with me? Jesus, I need you to forgive me for trying to pretend I'm the center. My needs are the most important. And help me to put you first. Forgive me. Give me a fresh start today. Be Lord of my home. Let me say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.